Uh, yeah. So, Shadi, are you uh, radicalized by Joe Biden? You know, what's interesting is I feel like I've been changing day by day. <laughs> you're, you're less radicalized now by Joe Biden. OK, so when we recorded our last episode before Kabul fell, I was more ambivalent and I was still generally sympathetic towards withdrawal. When I actually saw how withdrawal played out in real time, in real life, that that made me wonder about my sympathy towards withdrawal. But that was probably like some somewhat emotional in the moment. And when you're seeing images like those that we saw, um, you know, especially falling with out the, of, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you see all of that, and it's hard to not feel angry and frustrated at the level of just tragic incompetence, which, of course, is a different issue than, you know, I mean, we'll, we'll get into all this. So uh, today, you know, two days after the fall of, of Kabul, I think that I'm just trying to take a step back and be more analytical. A big part of the problem was Biden's speech um, on Monday. Terrible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was so I thought it was so horrendously bad that I couldn't think clearly about it. I would I was just so shocked and beside myself at the level of just sh I I said on Twitter that I thought it was one of the most cruel speeches I've ever heard from an American president, perhaps even crueler than the things that Trump had said. But it's also it's hard to compare Trump and Biden because um, Biden, you expect, sorry, Trump, you expect him to be callous and cruel. So it doesn't surprise and shock as much when you have a Democratic president who you respect and who you voted for engaging in Trump-like rhetoric. Yeah, but aren't we used to, aren't we used to Biden saying pretty wacky things about foreign policy at this point? That's true. I guess we forgot about that. But maybe this is a good time to, um, we do have a special guest. Yes. You heard someone there in the background. Um, before we introduce her, and she is a very special guest, so you guys are in for a treat. Before that, we just have uh, you know a little bit of housekeeping. Um, this is just um, just a reminder and an encouragement to all of you that um, we're doing some exciting stuff at Wisdom of Crowds. You guys probably want to be part of it, and if you do want to be part of it, then you can subscribe for a few dollars a month. And you can do that by going to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. So as some of you guys will know, we do a weekly Friday essay where Demir and I alternate each week and we write a little special essay for you guys. And then we have also bonus episodes pretty much weekly, sometimes with special guests. So we've had um, members only conversations with uh, Glenn Greenwald, Ross Douthat and others. And then just like bonus episodes where Demir and I fight because if we know that a lot of people aren't listening and it's a smaller audience, we can be more unfiltered and get more emotional and say things those we otherwise wouldn't say. Exactly. <laughs> I love those. So, yeah, so that's that's a treat that you guys have, have in store for you. With that, Demir, do you want to take it away? Yeah, sure. Uh, we have a special guest, someone that, that uh, we mentioned in the last episode, uh, a real authority on Afghanistan, uh, Jennifer Murtaza Shvili, uh, who is the associate professor and the director of the Center for Governance and Markets at University of Pittsburgh. Uh, Jen, uh, your book that, uh, you know, Shadi and I have both read excerpts from, Informal Order and the State in Afghanistan, that was 2016. You have another book coming out soon on Afghanistan as well? 
Yeah, it's coming out um, any day now. Oh, excellent. Uh, yeah, it's called Land, the State, and War, Property, Institutions, and Political Order in Afghanistan. Mm, excellent. Ooh. So, very Speak- timely stuff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but because but no, it, it seems to me that Land, the State, and War is covering, I mean, that's a lot of things there. I mean, most things are Land, the State, or War. Well, so we look at the intersection between those and it's co-authored with a certain Ilya Murtazashvili. Uh, so this book we've actually been working on for 12 years now. Um, and it looks at property rights in Afghan history and the importance of informal property rights and how you know, governments, uh, when they start getting involved in land issues, they don't generally do a good job. And a lot of the, the land issues have actually driven conflict uh, in Afghanistan over the past centuries. And this is a really contentious issue. And we, you know, we come to the conclusion that a lot of the land issues are just better left alone to customary authority to manage. So it really builds on my first book, which is all about um, how rural governance in Afghanistan works. Well, so Jen, you know, I mean, the reason I uh, really, I mean, both of us really wanted to have you on is... Uh, Look, so I I mentioned in the last episode, I'm sort of, you know, I have this layperson's obsession with Afghanistan, but I really, I know nothing about the place. I've never been. And so, you know, I I always love talking to people who've been there. But then, you know, when we met, how long ago? It was almost a year ago now and sort of started talking. And then, you know, you were telling me about your time in Afghanistan. So maybe a good way to even talk about, you know, start our conversation off here. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the work you've done there, you know, uh, when you were there. Uh, and some of your experience and takeaways, because again, the stuff that we read from your previous book, I, I think it's it's all incredibly relevant to what's going on now, and you know what we can think about going ahead. So I don't know, maybe you could say a few words about about you know your time there, and you know how you got there, and your sort of impressions and experiences. Take it wherever you want, really. Sure. I mean, I've been working. I think I first went to Afghanistan in two thousand and five. Um, And it was actually after five years I had spent living in neighboring Uzbekistan. Uh, And uh, I did uh, five years in Uzbekistan right after college. And I was in the Peace Corps. um, And uh, I worked for three years for USAID in Uzbekistan. And I was actually working for USAID doing democracy promotion. Shadi, so I want to talk to you about that. (laughs) (laughs) And I did that for three years, but I was working in the embassy on 9-11. Um, and so when, you know, the, the, the planes hit the, the twin towers, we were on the front lines trying to get humanitarian assistance into Afghanistan, um, before the war started. And so uh, long story short, after 2005, I was no longer welcome in Uzbekistan. There was a political uprising against the government. I learned a dialect of Farsi in the Peace Corps and, uh, in Uzbekistan, long, long story, but started going to Afghanistan in 2005 because I had this funny dialect of Farsi that I spoke and Dari and Farsi are the same language and uh, worked for a number of aid projects because in the beginning it wasn't possible for me to do research. I couldn't get grants at that time. No funders would give me money to go independently to Afghanistan. That's changed a lot since then. Uh, So I, I think my first gig was with an NGO. Then I did a stint with the UN when they were setting up the Afghan parliament. Uh, really interesting, um, and then did three years of field work um, for my dissertation. Much of it was in rural areas, 
in Afghanistan. And I traveled around to about 30 villages with a group of six Afghan researchers. And we had the time of our lives running around villages, trying to understand how they govern themselves when the government can't or won't. And at first, I thought a lot of the aid programs that I was looking at, because I came from this like USAID background, and I was reading about some of these really inspirational aid projects. Actually, some of them were um, the brainchild of Ashraf Ghani. Mm. And uh, I, you know, I was so excited to look at these things because on paper, they just looked wonderful. And man, if I was going to be designing aid programs, this is what I'd do. I started going to villages, and it was pretty clear to me that like that was what I was reading wasn't true, hmm. that a lot of these aid programs existed on paper, didn't really exist in practice. And these were like in villages outside of Kabul when I started exploring them, like piloting my research to see if the questions I'm asking made sense. And that's when I kind of understood that this customary governance structures that everybody, all these analysts, and even today I fight with people about this, you know, these Washington types, Sorry, folks. I know they're the worst. Those <laughs> yeah, Washington the worst. people. His Washington people, you know, they're they're saying, oh, you know, customary authority in Afghanistan's been wiped away after twenty years of conflict. It doesn't doesn't exist anymore. It's you know, so we have to build this new stuff and build new organizations and villages. And I believed it. You know, I hadn't been to a village, and I started going to villages, and lo and behold, like that wasn't true at all. And in fact, what I found, what I wrote about in my first book, was the way that this customary authority resurrected itself after the conflict evolved and changed and adapted to, to meet the demands of citizens. But what I found was like an international community that was pretty hostile to it because, you know, it doesn't include women. Um, there's a lot of normative stuff going on. Uh, so they tried to replace it and undermine it. And it, that's that was sort of the story of the book. But aid didn't really play a big role in the book. Um, I thought that it was really interesting to me to understand how this these structures worked, and that's really what I focused on. Hmm. And so, when you were you finished your research, and and uh, I mean, the book came out in 2016. When did the research finish? How when did you leave Afghanistan? Uh, so I probably left in 2000. I would go back and forth. The last research for that book was probably 2012. Okay. Yeah. And so, I mean, then maybe the, the other thing that I think might be useful for, uh, for listeners who, you know, are many of whom I think are, are, are tuning into the whole Afghanistan story. They, they know we've been there for a while. Maybe they remember uh, Obama surging troops in. They maybe even noticed that Trump was, you know, trying to get us out, but really don't remember the, the sort of uh, outlines of it. I, you know, I, in the last uh, episode... Uh, we put your uh, Washington Post piece uh, in the in the show notes. I, I we'll put it, it up again because I think it's a really good sort of primer to talk about how. Uh, well, you know, I mean, the piece narrowly talks about how the Taliban managed to take over the countryside, but I think it's it it, it has sort of echoes also of the arc from 2014 on, and maybe you can talk a little bit about that. And which I think involves, you know, uh, arguably the uh, the last attempt to, uh, you know, push through, I think, a lot of these projects that you, you found earlier on even were not really working, right? It was fantasy land since 2014. I mean, there's a lot of things that went wrong in those previous years. Um, the surge, like I was, I was really initially very intoxicated by the surge because, and it took me a while to understand why, um, but the, the military got 
the diagnosis absolutely right, right? The counterinsurgency strategy is about grievances. It's about governance. It's about things that are really upsetting people at the local level, clear, hold, build. You come in, you give people stuff and you give them good governance. The problem is, is the military doesn't know how to do that, Yeah, right? So you, the diagnosis was brilliant. They were the ones, the only ones really in Afghanistan who were working with, you know, rural village leaders and didn't think that they were complete idiots. Um, that's not the impression I got from a lot of the aid community and the mm-hmm. development community. Um, but after 2014, that's when the U.S. really began to draw back, um, began its advisory mission rather than a combat operations. And then that was also the time when Ashraf Ghani became president. Mm-hmm. Right. And we recall that and there's a lot of blame in Afghanistan that uh, Ashraf Ghani was really installed by the Americans. You recall that John Kerry brokered an agreement 2014 because there was such a contested election with uh, Abdullah Abdullah. And Abdullah run, won the first round of elections and there wasn't man, there weren't many allegations of corruption in that election. 2014 there was a, a runoff and it was there was it was incredible corruption. Mm-hmm. And they really couldn't determine who the winner was. There's a stalemate. John Kerry came and brokered a solution, and that's what put Ashraf Ghani as president, and and Abdullah became the CEO of Afghanistan. Right. Do do we have a and, sense that Kerry pressured the Afghans to kind of go ahead with Ghani instead of Abdullah? So we, that's for sure. I, I mean, yeah, there's a. I, I I can't say for sure. I mean, I could say what my impressions are. Yeah, um, yeah. But he was but it clearly seems logical the darling that of that Washington. That w- that would be our preference, exactly, because here's a U.S. educated technocrat citizen. Um, went to Columbia for his P. He's a oh, he was a U.S. citizen too. Citizen, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a, just a, a report funny that he, he he got his he went to get his visa. I mean, went to get his passport at the U.S. embassy like two days. This is just a report I just read. He went to get his passport at the embassy, the U.S. embassy, like two days before he fled. God. Oh, okay, <laughs> yeah. God. Well, so. There's a really interesting New Yorker profile of Ashrafani that, that I think is worth rereading. It was from 2016. And what you clearly have here, at least as far as I can tell, is someone who is very intelligent, even brilliant, but in a rather narrow sense, but also someone who's extremely stubborn and rigid, which is often the case with um, intelligent people <laughs> to one degree or another, but also someone who was really an almost perfect technocrat. He believed that there were right answers to problems, and that if you provide people those right answers, they either should accept those answers, or if they don't, they're dumb, bad, or, or should be resisted. And in a place like Afghanistan, it seems to me to have that kind of top-down technocratic approach is very much contrary to what you were mentioning, Jen, which is this focus on customary law, um, the rural culture, and working with elders in this more informal way. And here's someone who thought like an American and was like an he American. He thought like a neo-Marxist. I mean, his someone pulled up his dissertation today, and it's you know, I, it's been a while since I looked at it. It's this neo-Marxist stuff about the feudal Hans. Um, you know, it's really quite something. Um, but it, it's not just the technocratic part, it's the ideological part uh, that I think is even more damaging here. And it was funny because when I was doing work in villages, people would come up to me and they were like, this aid program that you're looking at, this village development program, they're like, this was what the communists did. 
the communists did exactly the same thing. They tried to like create these government, these councils for aid, and they had the president and a vice president and a secretary to treasure. And this, you're doing the same thing. And that's what the donors are doing. And then they started calling Ghani a communist. <laughs> and I'm like, I, you know, to my like 20 something year old brain, I'm like, and I spent time in the former Soviet Union. And I was like, he wasn't aligned with the communists. Um, and then they said, no, his friend, Hanif Atmar, he was a communist. And I was like, well, Hanif Atmar was the minister of rural development, who actually was until very recently the minister of foreign affairs. Um and he was a an agent of of the Chad, which was the yeah. intelligence services. Um, so people understood that what was going on. We saw rural development, and Afghans saw social control. So it's not just about you know being technocratic. There was that element to him, but it was the the notion to control everything, to centralize power, um, and that's really what was his that was his downfall. But Jen, say something else. What's what's baffling to me. So how do you get this guy with, you know, I guess informed by, you know, I guess socialist models of developing the country on the one hand, uh, this technocratic bent, I mean, that's fascinating about the, the dissertation. I, I did look through fixing failed states way back while uh, the American interest was still around. We, we farmed it out uh, and I re went and looked the, re the pretty harsh review. We ended up running of it. And it's a okay, crap for, for, but wait, hold on a sec, though. But what I want to, what, what I do want to ask, though, before we even get into that, is, is can you also just as background as a scene setter, you know, you, you, you mentioned this, and I before we get into some of this technocratic stuff, he also managed to through all the centralization also favor uh, like to to ethnicize politics, and I think that's another important thing. And you uh, you allude to it in the in the article. If you can just talk a little bit more about that. But just yeah, just for context, Jen, before you, I just just so our, our listeners know what Demir actually said, because he said it quickly. Mm -hmm. So Ashraf Lani quite literally wrote the book on fixing failed states. <laughs> I just want to reiterate that so people just digest it. That's actually the title of the book. And I guess we can include a link to that, too, if people want to check it out in retrospect. It's co-authored with um, Claire, Claire Lockhart. Lockhart. Yeah. But also, I forgot about this, too. I, I was just kind of going back to some into some of the Ashavrani history. He was also the CEO of an organization. And this is just this is so delicious. I can't even believe it's true. He was the CEO of the Institute, Institute for State, for State Effectiveness. Effectiveness. <laughs> yes, That's we all what know he, that. <laughs> anyway, Jen. Yes, tell, but tell us about the ethnic thing, Jen. No, it's, but it's, I mean, it's it's crazy, and yeah. like the Institute of State Effectiveness, State Effectiveness gets like World Bank contracts. Um, it's like a it's a it's a real operation. Um, uh, so the the tech, I mean the the ethnic thing is that you know um, Tom Barfield, who's sort of the 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 grandfather at this point of Afghan studies, the Doyen. Um, he had this article that he wrote right in 2001, 2002, right after 9-11 and the, the first, um, you know, the U.S. invasion. And he said, Afghanistan is not the Balkans. Yeah. Uh, because at that point, everybody came to Afghanistan from the Balkans yeah. and they had this ethnic yeah. idea in their head, yeah. right? So it's ethnic rivalries. And yeah. he said, no, ethnicity in Afghanistan doesn't work that way. That identity is based on locality and people don't have these sort of meta-ethnic identities. I mean, yes, they exist sort of in the background, but they're not big mobilizing forces. Uh, let in me just, 
just to add, I mean, for readers who want, Tom Barfield's book, which came out at what point was that? 2010. I remember that for me was, it's one of the, it's called Afghanistan, A Cultural and Political History. It is the best for someone, you you just want to get into to understand the texture. I I just thought that was one of the most terrific books out there. It's brilliant. He's just the kindest person, uh, just great scholar and easy to read. Yeah. Yeah, highly recommend. And he he he. Uh, so he he talks about this in one of his papers. We can link to the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, but twenty years later, that's no longer true. Um, that Afghanistan has balkanized in a mm-hmm. way that politicians have used ethnic identity in Ashraf Ghani in particular, um, really ethnicized politics in ways that we hadn't seen a ruler do in the past. Hmm. So, um, and he did this through a point. Go ahead. I I just talk a little bit about how a technocrat does that, because that's what I can't really wrap my head around. And I've read several profiles of Ghani since then. Did he do it? Did he back into it somehow? Was he doing it consciously? Was he blind to it? He was doing it absolutely consciously. Mm. Um, So this is where I don't think he's so much of a, I don't don't see him as a technocrat. I don't see him as some bumbling, you know, academic. I mean, I've got plenty of those like in my university. I know what that is, (laughs) right? This is this is a pow- this is someone who is power hungry. So the rap on Ghani, I've never met the man, but you know you see his speeches. He's got this temper. He's yelling. He's screaming. Um, you know his reputation for being controlling and hot tempered and intolerant. That's that's his his mo. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, he, certainly he had this Ivy League degree, and that's what people sort of fawned over. And he worked for the World Bank, and people just love that. And I see this all the time in development work in the development world. Like somebody, you have someone talk about social capital and use these buzzwords, and you know de- the development community, the foreign policy community, just goes gaga mm. without like thinking about the substance of what someone's talking about. So the way he was able to do this, and and was a consequence of the Afghan constitution, which gives uh, the president incredible power. And I, you know, we've, I've looked at other constitutions, fragile state constitutions. It's one of the most centralized constitutions in the world. And I'm working actually on a third book right now with uh, um, a third book on Afghanistan uh, with an Afghan uh, co-author, Mohammed Khadam Shah. Hmm. Um, and, and it's called Built to Fail. And what we, what we argue is that the current system failed because the donors came in and rebuilt the old Soviet constitution hmm. um, and gave a lot of power to the executive. And so what, what Ghani inherited was enormous power to appoint everybody at the local level, appoint all governors, appoint you know sub-governors. It gave him incredible power. And Karzai played this very well. He understood that he had to bring people into the government slowly. He was accommodating to the warlords. He got a lot of crap for doing that, right? He was no technocrat. He was a political wheeler and dealer, but was very effective in bringing diverse people into the government um, and accommodating difference. Ghani said, screw that. I'm going to put my people in. I'm going to put people from my ethnic group in. Mm. He played really ethnic politics. And so some of the things that I wrote about in that Washington Post piece is that he's putting people from like southeastern Afghanistan into the north. And this is the home of the Northern Alliance, right? Yeah. And it really upset people. Okay, so I'm, I'm a little bit puzzled about one thing, if we can just backtrack. Um, the Constitution allows for this very centralized, strong presidency, right? 
it seems odd to me that after the fall of the Taliban in 2001, that the international community, international donors in helping devise a new constitution along with Afghans would actually prioritize that. I mean, one of the basic things in political science is that, you know, I I think this is fair to say, I think that in divided societies, whether ethnically, religiously, linguistically, and so on, you know, you don't you don't want to centralize too much power. You want to allow for um, diversity and versatility in terms of how the government um, actually functions. You want to decentralize to some extent to allow local voices to to kind of have their say. Because obviously, if you have a strong a strong president, if that president has authoritarian leanings or is of one ethnicity or has a vision that he's trying to impose, then the the divisions will be exacerbated. And it's just surprising to me to think that, you know, that would be the preference of of, um, the international community. Can you kind of walk us through how that happened? Sure. And and like, let's let's walk ourselves back to the time, right? So at that time, the U.S., remember, Bush didn't like nation building, Mm -hmm. right? So that was U.S. attitude was that this isn't going to be this huge, massive reconstruction effort that it ended up becoming. Number two, you had the, the constitution that was put in place was the 1964 constitution, um, which people thought, and this goes back to the point I made in my first book, people thought Afghanistan was this tabula rasa. So like you needed to put something there quick. How do you build legitimacy? You know, they're talking to the king, you know, who was in exile in Italy. Okay, the 1964 constitution, that's got to have some legitimacy for people. And so what that constitution did is it combined the powers of the king and the prime minister. uh, Sorry, the current constitution um, took the 1964 constitution and strengthened the presidency. Okay, so because... I mean, Shadi, you raise a really good question. And this goes back to, I think, where I sort of fall on this is Weber. We see state building through Weberian eyes. And Weber defines the state as that thing that monopolizes the legitimate use of violence. So to build a strong state, you need someone who can do that, and a constitution that you that can do that. And so it all became about centralizing power because the problem people diagnosed was in- incredible fragmentation, right? So rather than, and so the argument that people even to this day make is that if you would have decentralized, the country would have fallen apart. You needed to build a strong center and then decentralize. Um, that was the argument that a lot of the Afghans made who were present, some of the Northern Alliance people tried to have more decentralization. They were vetoed at Bonn. They did bring it up. Um, they were vetoed. Um, and so that remains an issue that hasn't been resolved. And I think the third element is that donors, the Americans, and the Afghan government also has this sort of this Weberian streak where they want unity of command. If you're, if you're faced with this really fragmented society, you want to consolidate right? So both the Americans and the Afghans preferred something quite unified because it was easier for them to administer. To what extent does hmm. the whole question of, of, of uh, you know, of, of rights play into that in the sense that you need to, you know, you do need a sort of central authority in a society that perhaps, you know, is more traditional than that? Or does that come later in the sense after 
the power structures are put in place, they're just wielded to a certain extent to sort of impose a lot of this stuff on, on rural governance. How does that work? Well, it made everybody happy because now you you just slap elections on top of it, mm-hmm. right? So Afghanistan's a democracy now. Okay, so we got rid of the king, uh, and, and there was a parliament in that 1964 constitution. It was actually, for its time, it was a constitutional um, monarchy. Mm-hmm. So they had elements of elections in that. In fact, there was more democracy in 1964 than there is now. They had more elections from more local officials um, than they did post-2001. Um, 1964 constitution called for elected mayors. The current one does as well. They were never, ever implemented. Mm. Local, any of the local elections were never implemented with the exception of provincial councils. Um, but they had no power, absolutely no power, um, because they have uh, appointed executives who they answer to. So the executive has all the power. The provincial councils never had any authority, never clear what they were doing. They were looking for things to do because they had no oversight role, nothing. They were just elected to like hang out. Mm. And donors tried to give them things to do like manage development planning. It was, it was farcical. And everybody saw that it was farcical because people expected more. They were told, you're getting democracy. You're going to have a say. Life is going to change. You're going to participate. This isn't what you had in the past. This isn't the monarchy. This isn't the communists. This is all about democracy. And what people experienced was authoritarianism, Hmm. to be blunt, that was fueled by donor funding, and they didn't have any accountability over that as well. So a a strong centralized state also entails a formal legal system, this a very American, a Western-centric notion of the rule of law, where you have formal institutions that are the mechanisms for adjudicating the law and disputes and so on. And also... If you have a unified central system, it means that there's less variation on the local level for people to institute Sharia ordinances on the local level. I mean, in other countries that are more um, federal in their structure, like Indonesia or Malaysia, you actually do have experimentation with the implementation of Sharia on the local level, even if a secular party is in power on the national level. I'm guessing that there was also probably this assumption that if you want to ensure women's rights throughout the country and push for these more liberal attitudes to seep into the broader population, you wouldn't want to allow for too much experimentation with, say, Sharia in more Taliban-friendly districts or religiously conservative, extremely religiously conservative areas of the country. Is, is, is that part of the story, too? Yeah, I mean, I think that that would have been... You know, for the for the past four or five years, that's what I've been arguing. I mean, for years I've been saying there has to be more decentralization because if the Taliban would ever to take over power, right, then they inherit these institutions and the expectation that, you know, Shia communities can have their way, the northern communities can have their way, uh, Pashtun areas in the east and the south where the Taliban has more legitimacy can have their way, that can ac- it can accommodate this kind of diversity. Well, so... You know, Jen, uh, the other part from my like dilettantish reading of of, uh, of history is Demir. Is, don't don't undersell yourself. Well, I mean, you know, you're a pro, Demir. You're a pro. The, the the well, really, for reading Barfield and then sort of dabbling after that. But it's it's uh, the fascinating history is the what you were alluding to 
what Karzai was better at and what, what Ghani was so terrible at is, in fact, you know, whatever the constitutional arrangement is, this kind of power brokering, this management. And every time, you know, even in the monarchies, right, if you had, uh, if the writ of Kabul was extended too far, you'd get rebellion. That's sort of a, an, an eternal element of Afghan history. I mean, is that is that oversimplifying yeah. things? No, that's not. And that was really, I mean, if you talk to Afghans um, during the period from, you know, the, the, the 20s till the Soviet invasion, they would say, look, Europeans were killing themselves in the hundreds of millions and we're the land of forever wars. Yeah. Like, you know, we had peace. We weren't fighting. You, you know, Europeans were fighting, killing each other. Look at that. Um, and, and we get invaded by the Soviets and then you guys come and we're forever wars and, you know, graveyard of empires. Um, like, how how is this? Um, and, and so the writ of the state was when, um, you know, I've written on this, where I, I called it like an informal federation. It's like when the state respected the rights of communities and communities, you know, respected the rights of the state. And for periods of time, there was this balance between the two. Um, where communities were allowed to do their thing, rule themselves. They had to pay some taxes. They didn't have to pay too much. Um, they contributed uh, soldiers to conscription. There was universal conscription like, during the monarchy. Um, and as long as they did this, everything was okay. And the communities got to decide who got drafted. And, it wasn't and, the state. And, yeah. and worth pointing out too, right, that that one of, I, again, this is, I don't remember, that it was one of the early 20th century kings, in fact, was a great modernizer. In fact, Kabul was was way ahead of its time. Before the communists got there, you know, I mean... Amanullah. That right? That's right, Amanullah, yes. that's right, yeah, King yes. Amanullah. And and that's the other thing that people forget. I think it's it's oftentimes people talk about this this modernization that, that, that you know, I think was in, within living memory uh, when the communists came and all the... the you know that all the attendant things of that, but but they the Afghans were were super ahead on this. Except it wasn't again universal. It was this this patchwork, right? Right. Well, he got chased out. Yeah. Right. I mean, oh, he, he, yeah. he go ahead. Tell the he story. Got, he he got chased out. So uh, I mean, here's a lesson, right? So when the center uh, tries to do too much, so he came in um, 1918. He came to power, uh, and he was inspired by Ataturk. And he he went to Turkey. He brought many Turkish military officers. In fact, I have a friend who's writing about like the influence of these Turkish military officers in Afghanistan um, and had a real sh role in shaping governance, shaping the military. He traveled to Europe. There was a big scandal because he took his wife to Europe and there was pictures of her like uncovered, um, you know, wearing a hat. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what's that dress style in the 1920s? What's it called? Uh, uh, yeah, there's a name for this. You but, you'd know it. Anyway, well, I so gonna, <laughs> go nope. ahead. I was just going to say, God forbid, but then I realized, like, God forbid, might be taken literally. Well, the Taliban <laughs> certainly takes it literally. Yeah, She's but so, like, so so tell the story, Jen. So so, so yeah. she she so people see these pictures and they freak, right? And they freak at the same time where Amanullah imposes this constitution that he messes with property rights. Um, he tries to get rid of um, the bride price. He tries to get rid of um, uh, impose universal education, um, you know, gender equality, all of these things he tried to impose from the center. And then people see these pictures of his wife at the same time uncovered. And people are like, no, no, um, 
this isn't, you didn't ask us and you can do what you want, but don't impose it on us. And there was a revolt against him and he fled the country in 1928 and uh, never to return. Right. And then, but so then, that, that was the lesson is when the center becomes too aggressive of imposing its will, imposing its normative vision on society. And it's not that, you know, the, the point that Barfield makes that I make, it's not that society doesn't want government. It just wants government on its own terms. It wants government that listens to people. And the communists run to fall on the same exact same way, right? I mean, ultimately, that's the that's a mistake, right? And and you know what people often forget, they talk about the Soviet invasion, and one of the things we write about in, in our property rights book is that the Soviets invaded because the Afghan Communist Party Correct. was Mishugana. So they uh, they had a coup in 1978. They came to power, and they were like uber. They were beyond like Maoists. You know, you, you get like Marx, Marx, Lenin, Mao, and then you get that the Afghan communists who realize there's no proletariat. And so they just have to use a lot of violence if we could remember our Marxism. Right. So they have to use a lot of violence to get, you know, to in the industrial state very quickly. And first thing they do, they get rid of uh, bride price, eliminate interest and collectivize agriculture in 1978. And there was mass revolt. They didn't even really implement the agricultural reform. They just talked about it. Mm. And that's when the revolt started against the communists. The Soviets saw this and said, oi, these folks are out of control. Uh, this faction of the Communist Party needs to go. So they invaded in 1979 to quell the unrest in Afghanistan. They installed a more moderate faction of the Communist Party. But it was property rights that drove that rebellion. Hmm. Okay, so uh, so there's something that there's something here that I'm just trying to get a better handle on, which is the level of self awareness and self criticism within the international community. So we we've talked about some of the history and context, and I think that you know in in uh, in DC, if you're if you're doing policy recommendations on Afghanistan you'll always say something pro forma like understand the local context better. Everyone intellectually understands that you're supposed to take the local context more seriously and respect the culture and all of that. A lot of people say that, but clearly it's harder to reflect that in practice. So people just kind of mouth the words, but there still is this fundamental disregard for local context and for the religious um, specificities of Afghan society. But I'm wondering that as the 20-year mission went on, especially, let's say, in the late 2000s, early 2010s, when you would talk to aid people or, or people in this community that, that cared about Afghanistan, were they ever willing to reassess their premises and shift gears? Because obviously, you're, you're, um, you became a major figure in this field of Afghanistan studies and doing field work there. And you've, I imagine you've talked to a number of these folks were they ever receptive to your criticisms or what would they say? Because presumably they have some kind of answer that they come come back at you with, right? Well, I, the answer that I would normally get, there were some people who were receptive. And during the surge, like the US, USAID did fund some things on, on customary justice and traditional justice. But the problem is, is that foreigners can't be doing that, right? It's like, we can't understand, and this goes back to like understanding what is your vision of government, is that we cannot, you know, Hayek talks about an information problem. Um, we can't 
understand what's going on at that level. It's hard enough for Afghans. It's hard enough for me as a scholar who studies it to understand things that happen at that very local level in every community. And to have the U.S. government then, you know, put elders on the payroll and say, now we're doing customary, you know, we're paying attention to it. The aid community just doesn't have the instruments to do this very well. Uh, Sometimes the best thing to do is not to do anything. So there was some receptivity to it, but on the whole, there, there hasn't been. And there's been a lot of defensiveness, you know, even still I talk about decentralization to people. Um, in this past six months, it changed. There was a, if you could see, there's a lot more op-eds coming from people who surprised me um, talking about decentralization, because I think that there was a universal realization that what a disaster Ghani was. And that's a little late in the game, though. It was totally late in the game. And they (laughs) empowered him. They empowered him. They was he was their darling. Um, You know, he wrote the book on failed states. Um, There was a lot of fawning over over Ashraf Ghani and his ideas and his very bad ideas. And he he, but, you know, what does it mean to to, I mean, this is another myth, right? We have to appreciate the local context. Well, who, who, who are the locals that you're talking to? Who are your interlocutors? And and so much of the aid community was locked up for the past 15 years, really, right? They weren't really able to talk to people. And the people they mostly talked to were elites. I mean, this is where Afghan Twitter, I love it, but it also drives me crazy because there's a lot of voices who aren't there. Well, so what would you say about, I mean, how much of this is about a kind of liberal hubris that we as Americans and our Afghan elite allies who maybe shared some of these sentiments that... We and they wanted to encourage more liberal attitudes in a very conservative society, and that that was a premise that was oftentimes unspoken and was, in a sense, integrated in a lot of USAID programs where there would be different components built in on gender equality, for example. Not to say there's anything wrong with that, just to say that in terms of prioritization, um, whether that was always, uh, you know, a top priority when you don't have basic order or security and how that runs the risk of creating a backlash. I mean, uh, how I, what, I'm just trying to get a sense of the liberal part here, that if we as Americans are liberals ourselves and we try to do nation building, is there any way for us to, to, to suspend our liberal biases and to actually defer to local communities and local individuals without basically saying, here's the American way on minorities, gender equality, whatever else it might be, and we're going to let you take the lead. Is there a way that we can do that? Or are we sort of doomed as Americans who believe in a liberal universalism to basically say, well, our way, as far as we can tell, is the best way. That's what we know best. And then we expect you Afghans to at least get on board in some sense. And then you have Afghan elites who want that too and who believe that liberalism should be the future for Afghanistan. And they persuade us that there is a large enough constituency in urban centers to actually push for this new, more liberal vision. But, you know, so the, the 
I've heard you speak, Shadi, in the past talking about, you know, Afghanistan is a special case. And I think it is a special case. I think Afghanistan went far beyond nation building. I think it went far beyond democracy promotion. Uh, you see the obsession with Afghan women and cultural norms and what they're wearing. It almost goes like to a level of social engineering that I don't think we've seen people think about another country in quite this way. There's really this odd obsession um, with Afghan society that I've noticed. Um, and Afghans are perfectly fine with democracy. They were not given democracy. And for people to say that democracy didn't succeed in Afghanistan is not true at all, that people weren't willing to, to support democracy. They never got it. And they were angry about it because they were promised it. Right. And so can we focus on democracy? Is democracy enough? You know, you talk about democratic minimalism. And I think this is actually mm. a question for you, Shadi. Right. I mean, can the United States do this? Can we just say we're not going to do the sustainable development goals? And it's not just the United States. It's the whole like development complex, the development industrial complex. It's all about these these values and norms, um, at least the United States, the Europeans and like the UN, World Bank, you name it. Um you can't separate these things anymore. It's so deeply ingrained in everything that's done. And I'll give you a really good example. Uh, when I finished my, my dissertation research project, I presented the results to about 30 international NGOs in Kabul uh, who were supporting village aid program, this village aid program that I talked about. And I, they wanted to know what I found. And I shared my finding was most important finding is that people really love the infrastructure from it. They love that they can get their wife or daughter who's in childbirth to a hospital over a bridge, right? Hmm. That means so they don't die. I heard these kinds of stories all the time. But the participatory aspect that you all think is important, that they all sit around in a circle and have a flip chart and have a community mobilizer come and have them decide together what project is the most important and prioritize it, that doesn't really mean a lot to them. And what they value from this is the stuff they get, not the process that you really care about. And I remember there's this Italian UN woman. She stood up and she started like screaming at me. She's like, that means our whole project is to waste. <laughs> and I said, like, no, like you're helping people, like giving them stuff they want. They don't like need to be told how to govern their communities. They don't need, they don't need to be told how to like organize. There's so many well-defined rules in these communities. We should be grateful, right? That they have so much order and they're able to do, we, we should be envious of the kind of community, co uh, you know, coherence that they have. Just hearing you um, yeah. talk, Jen, there, there's something so absurd about this American presumptuousness. And it's it's almost like not I don't want to bring like woke stuff into this. We're talking about a completely different topic. But, it, you know, your description of people sitting in a circle, like talking about like cooperation and feelings and respect. It just reminds me of a certain kind of woke mindset. Um, obviously, this was before um, all that became popularized in our own kind of conversations here in the U.S., but I guess, yeah, I mean, this is, it's, it's so, so your question to me is that, so is it possible to do this is differently? It? Right. And, and that, separate... that's where I, I struggle with you, Shadi, sometimes what? when I listen to you talk oh. about democracy promotion. Is it possible? Well, but let me also, well, well, I, <laughs> no, but here's another one, though, because, you know, the, what, what you're describing also, Jen, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that there's a, there's even, even something in Shadi's minimal democracy 
entails empowering individuals in a way that that local governance in Afghanistan actually doesn't require. And that's the question is like, you know, and this is maybe something you could tease out, Jen, because you said they were promised democracy. But democracy doesn't mean one person, one vote. And, you know, you tally these up at the end of the day and you have representatives sent in because, well, that's also leads to a certain kind of centralization, which may not even apply here. Right. Tease that apart. They, they, okay, they, they but, can handle yeah. it. They can handle it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they know what that is. They're, they understand what a ballot box is and voting, but they were promised democracy. They were said, you know, we want to elect our district head, mm-hmm. the local, the lowest level of government. They were never given that chance. Mm-hmm. So instead of electing that person, that person was appointed from Kabul or appointed from the provincial capital. They had no idea who that person was going to be. Some of these thieves rotated from district to district to district, and all they did was steal. Hmm. And, you know, when I was doing um, that field work, you know, it's already like 13 years ago, I remember I, I, I developed a measure of good governance in rural Afghanistan. And what I said was that a good governor has, so when you go to a government office, right, and you'd seek some district government offices, and this is like a county in the U.S., a good district governor um, you'd see like these beautiful, pristine buildings, and you'd see other uh, buildings that were messy and had throngs of people outside of them. Um, and then you had these other buildings that were like pristine and clean and orderly. And you'd look at these two buildings, and one you'd say, okay, the pristine one is the good government, and the messy one with the throngs of people outside, that's inefficient. What I found was that the opposite, Mm. the ones that were well-kept and clean were often empty and devoid of people. The ones that were messy and had throngs of people on them meant that these governors, that the people were willing to spend their time and go see this person Mm. and solve a problem and get something done. And they trusted that person. And that's why there were lines to see them. The other ones turned out to be the corrupt ones. Nobody wanted to go see them. They had the pretty building. But uh, so it really correlated in my research to the mess buildings and the long lines to someone who was responsive. And that was luck. Hmm. That was luck on who got appointed. As a great philosopher once said, uh, never trust people standing in a straight line outside of a government building. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Who was that, Shadi? (laughs) More importantly, but you you sort of asked me a question. So, Yes, I've, I've been no, I've, I've been sensing some democracy skepticism from my two friends here. So I'll just say, I think that, Jen, you sort of provided the answer to the question that these this the minimalist, a more minimal democratic approach was intertwined with all of these other things, all of this other baggage that comes out of this liberal American hubris I think part of the solution, although it's not clear to me how exactly it would be done in practice, and maybe that's part of the issue, is that you separate them, that you have a conscious shift in the American mindset and how we work in these local contexts where we say our our preoccupation with liberal values and attitudes is a hindrance to what we're trying to achieve. We have to sort of put that in a box and say, hey, we care about this, but it's not the priority. And that to, that to me is at least the starting premise that we have to have. Now, I don't know. Are Americans capable of that? I'm in the minority. I mean, my new book is about trying to separate these things and being very conscious about it. It's an uphill battle. And, you know, maybe my side will never win. Um, I think it's possible. I mean, there's no reason that it, it should be impossible. But obviously, it's very difficult because Americans 
have a certain way of looking at the world. I mean, one thing, as as our dear listeners will know, is that one thing Demir and I do share is a skepticism towards this liberal universalism and how it fundamentally misunderstands human nature and the human condition. And if we go into these foreign adventures, assuming that there is a kind of universal human, we're going to be disappointed time and time again. Now, I think where Demir and I diverge is that he has a different answer to that dilemma, where he says, we'll never be able, well, correct me if I'm wrong, Demir, but you would say, I think, that we'll never be able to, to be good enough at doing that, that we just have to accept the tragic and be very modest with our ambitions. My answer is to say, I do believe we can do this better. But it requires a fundamental shift in orientation. And I want to devote my writing, my research, my life, part of it at least, to trying to persuade more Americans to fundamentally reassess how they do business in these other countries, especially Muslim-majority countries that are religiously conservative. So what do we do in Afghanistan now? The Taliban's in power, right? I mean, I want 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 to... I mean, if we're ready to jump to this. Ah, that's because- a, I, I really, this is, a, this is a great time to jump to it. And this is where I wanted to take this now exactly, is uh, precisely that. And I, I want to hear you talk about this. One, maybe let me, let me give you a jumping off point here. Um, and I, I think I've seen you tweet about this, or at least maybe it's in our conversations. You've mentioned it. It's, it's the following, right? Like, so we have this, this, this now precedent of 20 years of this like very centralized uh, model uh, we don't have the capacities in the experience of the last 20 years to decentralize. And yet the Taliban's own rise was enabled by resistance to the centralization. Now, the Taliban's coming in. I'd, I'd love to. There's so many things I want to talk about that, including terrorism, which is one thing that people are bringing up and we haven't even brought up at this point. Uh, the Taliban's relative legitimacy and then how they hope to navigate this fact that, you know, this country is not governable from the center. They have a, uh, or at least in 2001, they had a very totalizing and universal creed that they tried to impose from the center. For the time that they were ruling, they were not successful in imposing it from the center. So I don't know, what does it look like from now, like going forward, Jen? What is, what, what's, what's at store? We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And it, it's really going to be quite interesting to watch um, because I'm, you know, I think we were all taken aback by what has happened. Um, I just got off the phone with a pretty well-known Afghan politician who's not in office, well-known political figure, um, uh, who's thinking about joining the mm-hmm. Taliban government, is mm-hmm. in some talks. Um, he, he told me, the Taliban was also very surprised, right, mm-hmm. that they took power. Everybody is surprised that this happened with the rapidity that it did. So they're not prepared. Um, they don't seem to have a sense of how they're actually going to govern. We are seeing very strong signals that they understand what the grievances are that people have. And we see this in like their social media posts when they're sitting in these palaces and sort of making fun of them. They're going to gyms. I mean, we're laughing at this. Like we see them like lifting weights. That is a that is a precise message that uh, look at what our elites are doing. Hmm. They're lifting weights in a country where people are breaking their backs in fields, right? 
that that messaging, I mean, we think that that's funny. Um, but to many Afghans, it represents all of the excess of the ruling class and things that they never had access to. They're talking, there was a post this morning about access to electricity. I tweeted it about it. They go to like the, the equivalent of our like local electric utility. There's a picture and they said, we are going to make sure that everybody has access to power and not just the rich people because you can pay. You can, it's real well known in Kabul. You can pay the electric company a certain m- amount of money and get a special line so your mm. power never goes out. They know that. Like the, de- the details to which they see uh, the problems in Afghan society has really surprised me. Um, in cities, they see it. They see it in rural areas. And so their messaging really reflects a deep understanding of what's wrong. The question I have is, can they die, Can they fix it? They've done the diagnostic part, uh, but do they have the tools to govern? And will they be able to bring the country together? Because we see their regions, right, in the, in the country that still haven't submitted Panjshir, like the historic home of Ahmed Shah Massoud, the Northern Alliance, um, has said it's going to fight. And it's unclear how they how the Taliban will govern. So a funny little aside, since you mentioned like the um, the gym in the presidential palace, and as far as I can tell, this is is not a joke. Um, Nassim Taleb, uh, the black swan guy, um, right. on Twitter, he I, well maybe he's joking. It's really hard to tell. Like what is what is irony? Um, but he said so, he tweeted something like, um, "Oh look." The Taliban was going on the weightlifting machines and they didn't really know how to use it. And he's like, oh, not a single one of the Taliban um, knew how to deadlift. And Nassim Taleb is a big deadlifter. He's a big proponent of that. Right, right, and he's right, like the right. most he's like the most I saw them lifting or the most I saw them bench pressing was only 50 pounds. Look at these softies. No, I mean, these guys are a joke, something like that. Anyway, I just thought that's amusing because I, he might. Yeah, anyway. But more importantly, um, I think that um, you said something really interesting, Jen, that um, can, you know, can the Taliban bring Afghans together, at least some Afghans, various factions, and there are signs that non-Taliban politicians are willing to be part of a quote-unquote inclusive government. But that gets at, I think, a very dicey question for American policymakers and observers, even like us, which is... Wait, do we want the Taliban to bring Afghans? So it's it's at some level, I presume we want the best for Afghanistan. Maybe not everyone, but at least the three. Well, I don't know about Demir. <laughs> I'm just messing with you, Demir. That's just a joke. But the three of us, yeah, we. I think we, you know, who can say no to wanting Afghanistan to be better? But if the government that's in power and will be in power for the foreseeable future is the Taliban, then how do we square the circle there? I mean, it seems to me that the only conclusion one can reach is wait and see and try to pressure them or incentivize them to perform better and to actually be at least a little bit inclusive and to not be too brutal and to not be too repressive. Presumably, there will be some brutality, especially after the kind of honeymoon period, I would presume. But how, I mean, this is going to be very hard, I think, for American policymakers to deal with, because here is a historic enemy. Here is the Taliban that everyone in the U.S. has a particular image of. Um, do we want them to fail? Do we want them to be better? Do we want them to moderate and moderate in quotation marks? I think that there's rightfully so. Um, we should be very skeptical about whether moderation is possible. The Taliban are not going to become technocratic liberals 
ever. Um, but then again, do they have to be for us to, you know, so I, that's just an open question. I just, I don't know how to answer it. I don't know. I don't know what I would tell, let's say a member of Congress, let's say a democratic member of Congress, because presumably a Republican wouldn't, wouldn't be open to nuance, but let's say, you know, a democratic member of Congress is like, Hey, I actually want to help the <laughs> Afghan people and the Afghan, you know, and this is who they're living under. What do I do? Well, you know, it is, this is the question. And like, I see a lot of people saying right now, don't believe them, don't trust them. Well, what's the alternative? Like fight them. The Afghan security forces didn't want to fight them. They gave up. They didn't have a government they wanted to fight for anymore. Are we going to resurrect a, uh, you know, an insurgency against them. So what's the proper way to deal with the Taliban? Of course, you don't want to believe everything they say. But if is this an opportunity to engage with them? Right? I mean, do we want I mean, I think this is the million dollar question. Now that they're in power, do we want them to succeed? Well, well, yes. That, so but I, so I guess it sounds like you're leaning towards. Well, do you want to Answer that for us. <laughs> so, I mean, no, I mean, I, I'm honestly, I'm confused, right? I'm not I, I, like, you're not going to get a super sizzling hot take from me on this one. Um, I go back and forth on this, right? Like I see, I, and I have friends like in all the political factions and I hear it all and I respect them all. Um, but it, it, people are seeing peace for the first time. People are very nervous. If you're from an ethnic minority, um, you're very distrustful. If you're a Shia, you're very distrustful. You you know what's happened to you over the past several years, even this year. Remember, there are these bombings of yep. schools, yep. right? I mean, how can you ask someone to trust this? So how can they craft institutions? How can they credibly commit to some kind of process that, you know, eliminates all the concerns that people have? When they don't seem to have any governance capacity, they've never, I mean, they haven't governed in a long time, although they've governed parts of the country. But, you know, governing during war versus governing a peaceful country, I think, are two very different things. So I don't have an easy answer, but, you know, gosh, I, I'm, I'm rooting for the people of Afghanistan at this point. Can you talk a little bit? I mean, you know, I, I asked you about this just because, you know, in talking to friends and, you know, just general Americans talking about this. The one thing that keeps coming up, though, of course, as the justification, as the, the ultimate justification for America's presence and the, the justification for America's continued presence, even under a small uh, footprint, is counterterrorism, right? And and the, the thing that's, you know, that I've personally always been skeptical of is, you know, the whole global war on terror concept and the way it's, not just the way it's waged, whether it's Productive, whether you know sitting around and, and whacking uh, terrorists in Afghanistan, even if you're able to do it, and you know whether you're creating more because of the way you are, because you're, you're foreigner, all the rest of that. I mean, maybe you can address that a little bit and that concern with the Taliban. The question being about the the motivation of a movement like Taliban, uh, like the Taliban, you know, and especially as you're talking about it right now, crafting institutions and governance. Like, are they interested in that? Have they moderated as like ideologically? Is it, is it, is is their goal to govern or is their goal to control? And I don't know, you know, I or even tell us a little bit about the Taliban mindset as you even see it, if you can. We, I don't know. I mean, I, I think if anybody had the answer to those questions, like we, it would be a lot easier. But we don't know because what what they've done in battle. 
um, is very different from what they're promising right now. They have never... Uh, the, even the groups that are together, you know, being physically together in Afghanistan and seeing the situation there. Um, the counterterrorism issue is very different. Uh, so yes, there's terrorist groups that, you know, in the country, but this dynamic will change quite a lot now that the Taliban's in power. So there are, I, I would expect ISIS to grow in Afghanistan, but not for the reasons that we may suspect ISIS will likely grow because they're disgruntled Tajiks, right? Um, be, they don't have anywhere else to go, and they know that they don't have the support of the international community. A lot of you know places in the north, for example, have radicalized quite a lot over the past 10 years. Um, so we're going to see there's going to be a lot of Central Asian fighters, I think, coming into Afghanistan now, um, causing trouble. There have been you know increasing numbers, not a huge number. I don't want to exaggerate it. Um, so it creates a lot of new opportunities, but, you know, I, I think I would agree with President Biden that is this, is, is it, you know, I'm, I'm going to say this, I got really sick of the counterterrorism argument. Mm. Um, you know yeah. why? Because the longer the U.S. was in Afghanistan, this is why I was ultimately for withdrawal, because the longer that the U.S. was there, the worse the outcomes were for the people of Afghanistan. Yeah. And I don't care about counterterrorism because we're creating – it's a permanent war in the country. When the government only controls 30 percent of the territory, is that victory for counterterrorism? You know, to keep the troops in longer as Afghan people suffer so much for counterterrorism that seems to be spinning out of control anyway, is that going to make things better? I don't – I just failed to see the logic is that you're fighting something and you're fighting something with no end. Yeah. So yeah, – yeah. Go shoddy. Well, this is why, you know, um, people might be surprised for anyone who's been following me in recent days. They might be surprised to find out that my position has generally been one that's been, one that's sympathetic to withdrawal. It's only in the last. But I'm torn. I think that a lot of us are torn because I'm very torn. Yeah, exactly. And um, there isn't a good answer. And sometimes that's fine in life and politics. There isn't actually an answer to every question. Um, and, and it's surprising to me that I was someone who did want, I was very, I was sympathetic to the rhetoric about ending forever wars. And I thought that was appealing about, uh, Bernie Sanders in my Bernie Sanders phase, which I think is still like maybe, well, but putting, putting that aside, maybe I'll just hazard a response to, um, Demir's question, then get Jen, get your reaction, Jen about what is motivating the Taliban. So I did a tweet thread today based on an article that myself and a couple colleagues wrote uh, wrote some time ago where we, we do emphasize that the Taliban is surprisingly good at governance. And that doesn't mean they're good in absolute terms. It just means that they're better than the available alternatives and the bar is low. Very if you low. have an Afghan government that's pretty shitty the Taliban doesn't have a very high bar to clear, so they can actually look better than they actually are. But for example, one thing that the Taliban has been quite good at as they enter new territory in, you know, in recent years, 
they pr- they focus immediately on dispute resolution. So one of the issues in Afghanistan is that you have a formal court system that's been, you know, that's been encouraged by Western donors and Western governments, this idea that you can create Western style rule of law. But then Afghans themselves don't trust that because they're more used to informal dispute resolution. So the Taliban comes in and they say, we're going to provide a kind of rough, brutal justice. We're going to be quick. We're going to be efficient. And you'll know what the rules are. And that actually provides some predictability to people who have been facing unpredictability for years and years. So that seems very appealing to them to have this strong force coming in. And they actually say, we're going to resolve this for you. We'll get things done. Um, now, the question is, is governance an end unto itself for the Taliban or is it a means to other things? I mean, I, I'm someone, Demir, as you know, who takes re- you know religion seriously. So I think that for many of them, they are true believers and they want to actually fashion this Islamic vision. And good governance or better governance than the alternative can be seen as a means to build at least some local legitimacy and local support to actually follow through with this austere, harsh religious vision. Now, it might not be as harsh as as it was in the 90s, but still, on the spectrum, the Taliban is going to be pretty far right. So, I mean, that would be one way of looking at this, is that they do have a vested interest in governing in an okay way um, and showing that they can actually get some things done. But ultimately... I think that one of their goals is clear, which is they want to impose, um, you know, this this um, harsh interpretation of Islamic law. Now, yeah, so I mean, that that just that, that's one way of answering a very difficult, thorny question. I'd be curious, Jen, does that resonate with you? Yeah, you know, except I think what what we've some of the research shows is that the longer that the Taliban were there in communities, uh, you know, they promised this rapid dispute resolution. But when when you sit around for too long, you start misbehaving. And so this also became problematic. So they weren't able to govern as, uh, you know, there were rebellions, right, within, and, within Taliban territory. Hmm. Um, so they were not able to constrain themselves um, as, as they had promised. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because, you know, the government wasn't incapable of this. I would interview uh, governors. And what I realized is that like these good governors, um, why were they good? The ones who had like the long messy lines outside their office. So I talked to people and they'd say, oh, you know, this governor just solves our problems, solves our disputes. We really like him. And then, you know, I'm like, why do people listen to the governor? Like, he's not religious. Um, so I'd ask the governor, I said, well, you know, why, why are people listening to you? He said, well, if, if they don't, they can't solve their problems, then I'll send them to the courts. And nobody wants to go to the courts, uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> right? And so I realized that what the good governors are doing is they're behaving like tribal leaders. They're behaving like customary leaders. That's what the Taliban are doing through religion. Um, and the religion and custom are deeply intertwined in Afghanistan. And that kind of thing, that local kind of dispute resolution is deeply embedded in, in local society and local culture. And that's why it's seen as very legitimate. And it's based on, you know, consensual processes to achieve a consensus rather to impose a solution. Uh, we have these kinds of processes in our judicial system as well. We have kinds of mediation. Um, so this is not some bizarre concept to Afghanistan. Um, but I think it, it is a question for, you know, what kind of government system will 
the United States tolerate? Will we provide aid to the Taliban? Um, you know, there's a good question coming out today. The U.S. has frozen the Taliban's bank accounts. I mean, the the central government's bank accounts, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, Ashraf Ghani allegedly had 169 million dollars in a suitcase. Yeah. Um, and so we don't believe you know, that, do we? I mean, because based on the know. movies that I've seen, where people like rob banks and stuff, it's actually really hard to fit a lot of money in just a few bags. And well, 169 this... million is a lot of cash. <laughs> big, big, big bills. I don't know. <laughs> but but there's this video of him going up the airplane, you could see, and when he's leaving Kabul, and there's one of his lackeys behind him holding suitcases. And ah. as Ashraf Ghani's going up the, the, the stairs, they call the other guy back. They're like, come back here. And then you see Ashraf Ghani go in the airplane. <laughs> that's, that's what's, I mean, who knows the truth, but there's good reason to like freeze the, freeze the central bank, right? In, yeah, yeah. in light of the uncertainty. So, I mean, here's the question. Like, here's a question for you. It's like a real question about like democracy promotion. And um, man, I wish we had time to talk about democracy promotion because like I I struggle with this. Um, So the Taliban are in power. Should the U.S. unfreeze those bank accounts so that government employees can get paid? Do you unfreeze the bank accounts so that there's not panic on the streets, so that, you know, money is flowing back into the economy, so people could take money out of the banks again? Do you treat Afghanistan like a normal country now? You can't wait on this decision, right? This is well, a I pretty think we have to use decision. it as leverage. I mean, my, my, my instinctive response would be that we have to get something in return from the Taliban before we offer those concessions to them and make their, I mean, if we're going to make their lives easier by unfreezing um, this source of this source of funds, there have to be certain guarantees or there has to be the formation of a government that includes at least some non-Taliban ministers. It just seems to me that, I mean, and I, I have to be curious, Jen, um, this hasn't really come up and it's actually like quite nice that Trump's name hasn't come up that much in this episode. But we haven't talked about last year's Trump-Taliban deal. And one thing that Demir and I have maybe, I don't want to say disagreed, but we're just not sure. I mean, I've, I've been very vocal that the Taliban, the Trump-Taliban deal was a disaster because um, the deal wasn't made conditional on an intra-Afghan settlement, which obviously would have been very difficult. But once you once you do a very narrow deal, that doesn't you're, you're giving up your leverage and I'm just very I'd be very reticent about giving up our leverage the leverage that we have left when it comes to our engagement with the Taliban if so, we have something they want to need let's be very let's be very serious about using it effectively to get something that we consider to be important and Jen let me just jump in now to give my side on this and then you adjudicate like a like a tribal elder between us here <laughs> but like but but here, here here's my perspective on this is the following is is ultimately managing this process to me seems crazy and it's to me that's that's where i bridle at shadi's democracy promotion because even here now, I, I, I can anticipate that part of the answer would be, you know, with Ashraf Ghani, there was no possibility of doing power sharing because A, he's crazy, B, he's irredeemable, and he's our guy. And that's the part where, you know, like looking back at the history of the last, since 2014, trying to do a power sharing agreement with our guy, our government, is, is deeply misguided. So in some way, pulling back and being like, okay, you're on your own. Actually, it's the last thing that managed to dislodge this piece of shit out of 
out of Afghanistan, right? <laughs> and so, yeah. and so, and so now, now you're faced with with uh, you know this insurgency that's come to power, and and guess what? Uh, Abdullah is in Doha. I don't know who you were talking to was in Doha negotiating with the Taliban, and and without any of our input, maybe there's some kind of agreement that comes out of it. Maybe not. Now, okay, maybe we should be sitting out here and trying to micromanage this. But, you know, I, I, I feel like the more we're involved in nudging and pushing this along, the less legitimate the whole damn thing looks like, quite frankly. And this is what I was getting at on Twitter, Shadi, like responding to you about democracy promotion and like uh, let I, I first wrongly said, let the people decide, which implies that we have some minimum that we want, like participatory democracy. No, let 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 negotiations work out at this point and let them try and come up to some sort of thing. If it devolves into some sort of chaotic civil war and then there's interests that involve us into it, that's fine. I can't imagine us right now trying to engineer a decent uh, okay, thing but here. Demir, that, and I'll let not... Jen answer this, though. No, but let me just clarify. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about a wait-and-see approach. Let's see what the Taliban does in the coming months, and then we can consider releasing certain funds. I'm just saying that we shouldn't do it but immediately. But you're waiting and seeing. Yeah. You have to, but you have to do this now, now, right? Now. This is not something that can wait till like, we've got the perfect you know, peace agreement signed. You've got to get money. Like, the ATMs are empty, right? There's, been a, there's no money. And do you have a government Right. The government has collapsed and like half the technocrats are, you know, on planes to the U.S. right now. I mean, there's like I, I was talking to someone else today. So there's like no one. My organization doesn't exist anymore because my staff is all leaving. Yeah. Right. So there's another whole heartbreaking human capital element to this. And I certainly hope things calm down. So this entire generation of people doesn't have to leave the country. I mean, that's a whole but is there a way to restrict. There. Is there a way to restrict funds to the. Taliban and and the people who are in various ministries versus access to ATMs and kind of You're thinking more... like a technocrat. Yes, it's You're crazy. like a technocrat. This is crazy. Well, no, what are you guys? I'm asking, guys, this is an open question. No, no, I actually, but, Shani, I mean, but, but to me, you know, but you know why this is crazy to me? This is you trying to engineer a positive outcome. No, it's, no, yes, it's it not. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. No, because it's, it's for you to engineer a moral and positive outcome out of this when really what you've gotten is like, we're out. And now, like, you, you need to let this thing coalesce, even if it coalesces with a repressive Taliban government. You okay, need to, so you're saying you let's give funds that. to the Taliban, then. Correct. You're saying that's what the U.S. has to do, uh, like, it's, tomorrow. Well, it's Afghanistan's funds that we've frozen, quite frankly, that we've, fine, granted them. We don't have to disperse more aid to them. We've promised them a lot next year, too. Wow. Yeah, but that's a different That's interesting. Say, that's interesting, one, yeah. One of the problems, though, with this is that, uh, yes, uh, the peace negotiations, uh, Trump, you know, I didn't think that they were peace negotiations. This was, you know, Trump wanting to leave. Yes. Right? And so to me, he wanted to leave. He wanted to get the U.S. out. Uh, looks like the American people also wanted to get the U.S. out. And we see this under Biden as well. So he created an opportunity for people to get together, sit down, um, did his uh, deal betray the Afghan government? Absolutely, it did. But did he give the Afghan government an opportunity to sit down and be part of the discussion? Absolutely, he did. And Ghani turned it down every single time. He delayed, he stalled. There were opportunities for him to do power sharing. There were opportunities to save the government. That would require compromise with the Taliban. The ta I mean, do we believe the Taliban? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. And anybody who says they know, I mean, so emphatically, you know, I wish I had such certainty about the way things were. I've been working in this country for 16 years now. I don't know. 
what they will do. Um, there's an opportunity here. There was there was opportunities before. I blame Ghani for those negotiations going bad. He had an opportunity to change things, and that's why you saw so such frustration on Biden's part. While he got called to the principal's office earlier this year, he got flown to Washington. I don't remember if you remember these memos that were leaked. They were really stern to Ghani. This was like, look, fella, we're saving you, and you are not doing any like. We can't protect you anymore. We don't have the political will. The U.S. saw the government falling. We all saw the government falling. We didn't see the government falling today. Correct. Right? But we all saw this was happening. And, and Ghani had a chance to resurrect it and, you know, and that, and, that, and that's the part, Shadi, why I was actually watching Biden's speech where, Jen, I, and I, I retweeted your thread where you were saying it was an incredibly cruel speech. But it wasn't an incorrect speech in actually pouring scorn on this government because this government, if it was more legitimate, if Ghani didn't have his his head up his ass so hard, in fact, perhaps could have even managed to build up some kind of resistance to, to rally the army and to create something. This is all like this binary sort of thing, which is, you know, well, we did. I mean, look, the, the, the drawdown was ridiculous. I think in many ways we did undermine the, the fighting capacity of this, but it's the illegitimacy of our no. government, Shadi is the problem. Yes. Okay, but also keep in mind that Ashraf Ghani and his government were very dependent on the U.S. Was there sustained pressure? Certainly not under the Trump administration. Trump wasn't really engaged. Uh, Zalmay Khalilzad, I mean, his performance seems underwhelming and seems like he was just prioritizing Trump's desire ahead of the elections to get out of Afghanistan. But if we had said to, to Ashraf Ghani, like, listen, at some point we're going to restrict support to your government at some point we're going to diplomatically isolate you if you're they've done not that before. willing and they've he, done that before yeah and they he tried. didn't believe it he didn't believe it just because, like our but military we also didn't do it just, okay, well, we, because just just like our goddamn military didn't believe it they thought they could roll biden like they rolled obama trump was the the aberration they all thought that trump was this like weird outside thing and it took Biden actually pulling the plug for 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 Ghani to quit, and he quit like a week ago. For Christ's sakes! Wait, and no, no, no. Ashraf Ghani didn't quit because of Biden's actions. He quit because the Taliban was going to come in and, like God knows, do what to him. Do you understand? He could have quit in May, and actually, we could have been negotiating at that point. Exactly, but did we put enough pressure? Um, yes, Jen. I mean, he. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Did, I mean, did he believe our threats were credible? Clearly not. Well, but we did pull out, right? I mean, we Biden announced. No, no, but I mean, well, in, in terms of saying that, no, no, I, like obviously things were probably too late by May anyway. But I'm saying before that in, in the several like, these last several years, first under Trump and then under Biden in the first few months, um, you know, and actually Obama, there was some obviously some overlap, uh, short overlap with Obama too, Obama and Rani, right? Yeah, uh, 2014. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. John Kerry. The U.S. Yeah. did that. The U.S. put him in there. Right. So I'm wondering, you know, if the U.S. hadn't done that, if the U.S. after a certain period had started to withdraw support and actually cut aid and say, we are not going to provide the basic things you need for your government to sustain itself. And Ashraf Ghani saw that those threats were credible, not just rhetoric. And I think the presumption always, unfortunately, is that American rhetoric with 
bad leaders in the Middle East and South and Southeast Asia and God and other places is that when push comes to shove, we're going to indulge the client state. We're going to indulge the client president. And that's what allows someone like Ashraf Ghani to say, hey, I don't actually believe the U.S. is going to do what it says. So I'm going to hold on strong and they're going to back down. It turns out he was wrong in this case. But I think clearly it wasn't communicated to him clearly enough. He thought until the very last moment that he would have U.S. support, right? Well, I mean, I thought it was communicated pretty clearly. But there was, I mean, I don't even want to talk about what was going on in Washington. But, I mean, I can't tell you how many events I've been invited to by people in Washington, off the record, you know, Zoom sessions with this person and that person to try to, you know, lobby uh, you know, all the former ambassadors to like lobby to make sure that the U.S. stays. There was a real, f- I mean, it wasn't just Ghani. It was the for the foreign, you know, I don't want, I hate the word the blob, but right. There was a foreign policy establishment that did not want the U.S. to leave. And, you know, t- that's what I don't like about this discussion. The discussion we're having in the U.S. is like stay versus go and the American empire is over. Like, I don't, this is about Afghanistan and why things didn't work. And we start imposing all of our, you know, wringing our hands about the role of America in the world and the symbolic nature of blah, blah, blah. Let's pay attention yeah, to why we didn't win. No. <laughs> Raw. Like, like I, I don't care about any of that. And I don't, I don't think that um, – I think we'll forget about this, frankly. Sure. Um, but, Jen, let me, let me get this because I, I think this, is, this really gets at your earlier question about aid uh, – or, sorry, unlocking the funds – and the Taliban, because here's the, the, the crux of the threat is, are we willing to let the Taliban in government? If we say that the Taliban are unacceptable on some level, Ashraf Ghani never quits. And that, right. was the, that, that was the actual veto he had on our policy, Shadi, because, and that's why everyone in Washington and the whole sort of like the entire complex was like the Taliban is an unacceptable alternative. Well, if I, Ashraf Ghani, know this, I'm just going to sit and wait because and, and he and he waited until Biden called his bluff until the yes. fucking Taliban won. Yes. That's right. how bad he is. That's how much of a piece of shit this guy is. Do you understand? Like that level. Yeah, well, then and, that's a problem with with partly with the blob. I mean, personally, Shadi, it's the same thing I've said about Hamas. Like you can't eliminate groups that have local support. Shadi, you were just um, saying po- you, you want to hold what, funds what? back from the Taliban. OK, but that. Yes. But I, I, I vote, you know, that I've supported a power sharing arrangement. I mean, that's that's always my position when it comes to, um, you know, militant groups that can't be destroyed. And you can't obviously destroy the Taliban just so you can't destroy Hezbollah or Hamas. You have to find a way to bring them into the political process. And there has to be some way to share power between different ideological factions. That's my position. Um, what What is different here is I think that leverage shouldn't be given up um, because we don't have that much leverage with the Taliban. This is one of this is one of the aspects That's that very we true. do still have. I, I, so the question is, do you the, the question is, do you want to give same problem I had with the Trump Taliban deal? The biggest leverage we had was not. Kill, I mean, the Taliban was concerned about one thing primarily, and, and it's what they got from us. They didn't want us to kill their leaders because that had been devastating for them and led to internal divisions, especially when you had different succession periods 
in 2015 and 2016, they wanted to find a way to stop the U.S. from droning their leaders. What if the enemy we is gave that up? We we gave that okay. We gave that up without getting almost anything in return. We gave up our biggest leverage to the Taliban in the Trump Taliban deal in 2020. What if the enemy is Ashraf Ghani? What if he is the obstacle to peace? That's well, what, he's gone now. Well, now he is, and now we have a chance to do something, and now you're starting to engineer it again. Because here's the problem. I, let, me, let me put it to you this way, Jen, and then maybe you can fill in again. But to me, power sharing is not something that's imposed from an outside force, and because it's a good. You do power sharing because you need to. Ultimately, if, if the Taliban feel like they need power sharing to govern, they will agree to power sharing. You sitting outside and saying power sharing is right because inclusivity is bullshit. Okay, but we know that third-party mediators are important in power-sharing arrangements. That, You're such that a this technocrat, is the whole, oh, God, I so, oh, okay. I so disagree with that. Okay, well, don't we... we okay, I'm sorry, we... Yes, I, no, not I'm to get into. Okay, well, you know this is factually true. I mean, maybe that's not the primary impetus, but... But it's it's the same thing, which I think annoys me a little bit with Israel-Palestine. And when like someone says, oh, the U.S. can't want a peace settlement more than the Israelis and Palestinians want a peace settlement. It's a cop out. We have leverage with both parties. We knock heads and we get them in the same room. There's always someone who gets the two sides in the same room because at first they don't want to be in the room. That's well, how peace that's, agreements work. But no. that's what happened. Well, but, but, but that, I mean, so look at this. So I haven't actually answered the question of whether we should release the funds. So I'm, I've enjoyed listening to the both of you. <laughs> yeah, you need, to, you need to adjudicate here. Yes, no, I'm listening. It's like a game show um, <laughs> with people's lives at stake, unfortunately. Yes, yes. Um, so the, um, I think one of the positive things, yes, the U.S. gave up a ton. But you know what? The U.S. wanted to leave. The U.S. was leaving. You know, does Trump make good deals? No, that wasn't a good deal. Um, did Ghani have chances to participate? Yes. And he dragged his feet and dragged his feet, dragged his feet, waited for Biden to come. You know, there was all these hopes that Biden would become president and change course. And I remember, like, getting invited to more roundtables and, you know, let's convince President Biden, all of you, you know, go talk to him, you Washington insiders. Um and, you know, let's keep things going. And I'm like, don't they know that we have to leave? And I don't want to hear any more talk about the fact that the U.S. hasn't lost, you know, lives in the past 18 months because that's because of the Taliban agreement, right? And I think the, the moral of the story is that the United States, in order to stay, to renege on that agreement, was going to have to send more troops in because the Taliban were going to come after the U.S. again. And did the U.S. have the stomach to do that? No, the U.S. wasn't going to do that. And realistically, in order to keep the presence after that peace negotiation was signed, the U.S. would have certainly had to bring more troops in. That would have never happened. I think the U.S. had no choice but to leave right now. The question of the peace agreements, looking back now, I think there's a real positive element to it. These people now know each other. We have, you know, Abdullah and the Taliban leaders, they're sitting down together now and negotiating this. And they are, they know each other. They've been talking to each other for a very long time now. Maybe nothing happened from it, but they know each other. To me, this is a, however small and insignificant this may seem, to me, this is very important at this really unexpected moment. Well, I don't know. I, I'm convinced. Shadi, are you still there? <laughs> 
No, no, I'm, I'm just, I'm in listening mode. No, I thought you were going to say something, Demir. No, look, I mean, um, I, 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 uh, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm mostly and I'm not a restrainer. Yeah. I'm not a restrainer. I, I supported, you know, I got to tell you, when I was in grad school and I was going back to Afghanistan, I was in grad school in Madison, Wisconsin, right? And I remember like coming back from Madison uh, to Madison after I, I did my field work. And I remember meeting these graduate students and professors and they were like, oh, you were just in Afghanistan, the land of the imperial invader. Like, you know, they must hate us there. And I'm like, no. People in Afghanistan were generally very supportive, you know, especially in those early years of the U.S. effort. And I remember going to this one village and this man, he's like, you know, the problem with Bush is he didn't send enough troops here. And let's go, you know, we want America here. It wasn't this, uh, you know, narrative of, of foreigners being there. I think it turned into that. And, and America is no longer popular as it used to be. Um, so, you know, we can't adjudicate this war now as the same as we adjudicated it 20 years ago. The strength of the Taliban has changed over time. So what the Taliban was 10 years ago isn't the same as it is now. The strength of the government wasn't the same as it is now. So many things have changed. Um, it's easy, all this hindsight, you know, it, we got to where we are. What do we do now? And I don't see any really easy answers. We have, I'm so sick of the black and white good versus evil. Um, the Taliban are evil, uh, democracy, the, the Afghan women saving them. This is such black and white thinking that is getting that place nowhere. Hmm. And I'm like, there has to be more creative thinking about this. We have to figure out like, what's the best way to get the money out of the ATM, right? To get that central bank money. What is the best way to do this? What's the best way to get Afghanistan in one piece? And I don't think we're even close to thinking about that, unfortunately. I mean, that was well said. I mean, that that to me, if, um, you know, you got the, the ones who got to the end of the episode, you're very lucky to hear that because that, that that was good to hear. And I think that that in an ideal world, that's the kind of sentiment that the U.S. would reflect that. Um, it's ultimately not about good or bad. It's about trying to help, you know, trying to prioritize the Afghan people instead of, you know, domestic politics or whatever. But isn't that the best counterterrorism too? Yeah, sure. Isn't it? Sure. But look, I mean, I guess my, my only argument on a lot of this stuff is, is and, and maybe this goes to, you know, your question, Jen, uh, but I would say that, that there's something, and it's not that Americans are liberals, but there's something in, I think, a conception of advanced democracy that demands a kind of liberalism. And so I, I do think that, that those things are, in fact, unentangleable. I mean, you know, I, I know I, I look forward to the book, Shadi, or at least to the galleys once they're back so I can, I can glance at this and we can start talking yeah. about it some more. But, but I, 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 I find it that, that, you know, there's a kind of... And it really comes down to a progressive sensibility, a sense of, of betterment. And, you know, it's, it's one thing to have the best interests of the Afghan people, and there's something else about moving the Afghan people forward. Maybe that's the crux of it um, in the sort mm. of American ideology of, like, progress versus well-being. And, and there's something moral in how we talk about democracy. There's, there's a moral normative aspect of it. And we have to abandon that to be able to do this, I think. 
And that's why I left the, I was a democracy promoter. I did that for three years. I worked for the, for USAID doing that. And I felt silly after a while, to be honest. Uh, you know, it's one thing to have, and this is where, you know, Shadi, another time I want to, you know, break down your idea yeah. of democracy promotion and how you do it and how it works. Because when I was down in like that, the nitty gritty of like implementing it. And to me, there was just such silliness about, you know, we have to have everybody sitting around with their flip charts and teaching people how to make NGOs. And, you know, I, I do a lot of work in countries outside of of Afghanistan. And the whole thing of democracy promotion now just means the United States. Democracy and the whole NGO and gender and all these terms in so many countries is so politicized. It's no longer about the concept of democracy. It becomes a foreign policy issue. And if you say you're pro-democracy, usually it means something associated with the United States. A lot of this is the consequence of like, you know, the propaganda of the past 10, really, really gotten bad over the past 10 years. Um, but these just become concepts and they become, they seem so artificial the way that we impose democracy, our democracy industry, the way it works, just seems so hollow and not indigenous at all. And worse, toxic. I mean, but anyway. Well, so look, I mean, okay, I'll just, you know, how about I say this? Um, You know, they may... uh, (laughs) (laughs) I, I have to say that in recent days... I have I have felt myself losing hope in the ability of the US to get better on foreign policy and specifically on democracy promotion or democracy support especially in the, in Muslim majority contexts and I sometimes I feel a futility that these are things I I believe in I have believed in them and I still believe in them I have an idea of what it would look like what I'm having trouble holding on to is the notion that it's possible for people in our elite political class to actually do this well, or to even care enough to do it well, or to have high level presidential engagement, or even on the level of the Secretary of State, that it would require such a fundamental shift in American foreign policy. We've never really done it, but there's never been a sustained period of democracy promotion in the Middle East and, and South and Southeast Asia. It it was tried at most in 2004, 2005, and only then half-heartedly. And for maybe four months in 2011, in the early months of the Arab Spring. But there's a reason that it hasn't happened much because, and, and maybe I'm just getting to the point where I'm wondering, especially after seeing Biden kind of offer a bookend to this era. Um, And that's what I think this represents, that this is the U.S. maybe cannot become what I want it to become. It doesn't mean I'm going to stop believing in the things that I believe in. But there is a real question of whether we're capable of being better than we have been. And what I saw from Biden and by extension, you know, a good chunk of the Democratic Party this past week is that we don't really have it in ourselves. We can talk about moral leadership and values, and Biden has used a lot of lofty rhetoric in that regard about the central challenge of our time being that between democracies and and authoritarian regimes. But maybe we don't want to do this. Maybe we don't want to try, and maybe we just don't care. And part of what's required is caring. Um, so maybe that, look, I'm, I mean... 
this is a challenge that we have in, in think tanks where do we do we have pie in the sky recommendations because we believe that one day the context might change and that America, America, Americans or America or politicians will be ready for something dramatically different? Or do we accept the given constraints and we say we have to work within those constraints so we're not going to suggest too much, we're not going to be too ambitious because we know what the constraints are? This is the kind of two positions that I think a lot of us have to vast. I've always been, they may, you know, they may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I might. <laughs> oh boy! Like seriously, I'm, I'm puking <laughs> no, in my mouth no. right now. I've been puking in my mouth for like I the last. It. I've been puking in my mouth for like the last ten minutes, Shadi. But like <laughs> that, it finally, it finally came out the corners. <laughs> Wait, but can I say something, Shadi? Like, I just want to say, like, I'm I'm bored with you, but I with, with one exception. Okay. The the. <laughs> Like and I'm I'm, I'm not puking in my mouth. Wait, what do you mean bored? Bored with me? No, no, I'm, I'm I agree. I'm on board. On board. Oh, on board. Oh, okay. Yes, I'm okay. on board with you. So I I really believe. Like I got into this whole bit. I was in the freaking Peace Corps. Like democracy promotion. Like I believe, you know, and I believe that people are so capable. Like what I came away, I came so inspired. Uh, way so inspired from my time in Afghanistan, seeing the incredible ways that people solve problems, the way they 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 uh, mobilize in their communities to do things. And I got so upset that this was never channeled into like the state building project, that these voices and these capabilities were never given a chance. I came away so optimistic about the, the Afghan people, and I still am. I think I believe in democracy. I think it is the best way of all of our ways. But I don't think the U.S. is very good at doing it, promoting it. And I mean, at the operational level, I'm not talking about a deputy secretary of state like you. I don't know what that's all about. That's you, Washington people. I'm talking about like the local level of how it's implemented, how people do it. What does democracy promotion mean at the, you know, the, how does it work? You know, when the rubber hits the road, it, to me, it just can't comes off as so patronizing to people. Um, you know, it's, it's not very effective. Of course, there are people who really believe in it. There's, you know, groups of elites who are strong allies and people, but doesn't mean that people don't believe in democracy. They understand what that is, but the way the U S promotes it just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. But one more thing about Biden, let's not like get wax, wax too like poetic about what this all means. I think it means that people were tired of the war in Afghanistan. Full stop. Yeah. That's it. I don't think it means the end of democracy promotion or moral this. I mean, I just see every I think it means we were there for 20 years, didn't want to do it anymore. That's it. Well, I, I mean, I'll just explain the puke in my mouth. It's 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 <laughs> it's 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 uh, it's 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 sort of what you're getting at, though, Jen. It's it's really what we're talking about. What we should be talking about is implementing a system of legitimation and. You can say you believe it's the best system of legitimation. There's perhaps, you know, technical political science arguments that make the case that it's the most effective system of political legitimation. But it's what, what I always puke in my mouth when I hear Shadi talk about it is it's this soaring stuff about what we are. That's the problem. It's not what we are. It's just a method of organizing your society. And maybe it's better for people and maybe we should pursue it for that reason. Just strip away all this other shit. Like, strip away this meaning crap. Like, it's like, oh, this is who we are as a people, and it's our mission in the world to be better, to improve. No, this is progressive horseshit. Just stop. 
once you stop that wait did i, I say that yes you did <laughs> I, so it's, it's, that's what caused the puke shoddy like like we're not living up i'm giving up on the, the promise of our country and who we can be like fuck that shit man like seriously <laughs> Like, but that's that's really what it comes down to, and and why why I like Biden's speech, why I like Biden's speech so much. He was just like, no fuck that, like no fuck that, like really fuck that. That was what Biden's speech was, despite all the ass covering okay, and the sorry. cruelty. Demir, Demir, it's not it's not crazily idealistic to say that the u.s can be better in the future than it's been in the past i'm just saying i mean that's is that really asking too much that we just get a little bit better on democracy promotion we try to improve yes i guess that's technically progress because if we did do that i would consider that to be a moral progress good. a moral good you're moralizing moral you're moralizing what? You, well, you strip do, all, do you, I, th- you, I think you strip out and say something like, you know, we think that the best way to govern Afghanistan, for example, just to keep it in Afghanistan is where we're at, is democracy would be better for the people there. And now let's like you, you cap it at that. That's that, my position. And yes. then, then you strip out all this other stuff. And, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Strip There's, out what? What would you want me to strip out specifically? This idea what, what, that you are doing good. That's all. That's all I ask of you to do is just say we're trying to implement a method of government legitimation. That's it. Just because say that. we think it's better no, than the cares? alternatives. Just, just, don't say no. that. Don't say that. No. Say like, but we, it, you okay. know why you don't say that? It does because the job. It, it does, does the job. And you say the following is just like, well, maybe it won't work this time. And that's it. Like, you're not like, we need to help the, de- the Afghans re- like reach democracy. If there's an opportunity to nudge it, okay, maybe. And we but can't we would do have everywhere. to explain why, the though. Problem people, is, if we, if we, the problem hmm. is the U.S. screwed up democracy in yeah, Afghanistan. Correct. Like the U.S. spent 20 freaking years in Afghanistan saying that they were doing democracy promotion and did the opposite. And people aren't stupid. Yeah. You know, and so you're asking these Afghan soldiers to go to the front lines and to die for some bullshit government that they don't like, that's stealing from them, that's dishonoring them, that's, you know, so deeply has so deeply alienated them and then we say oh there you know there's a logistics problem next war we have to focus on logistics or next war we have to focus more on counterterrorism and force no people this was about the state this was about legitimacy of the state and the state didn't have it and one of the reasons why is because they were promised democracy and they never got it. I actually wrote a yeah, paper on this called Democracy Denied. People never had the democracy that they were promised. Every single election was full of fraud and the U.S. stood by it every single time. Amen. But that's different than what um, Demir is saying. You're saying that it's not so much that we tried democracy and failed. We, we're the ones who scooted up. We, we didn't actually My- – Promote democracy in Afghanistan, but not for some moral um, but reason. Demir is saying, Demir is saying that we shouldn't even like that. Shouldn't even be the goal. Shadi, my, my, no, my argument is not that. My argument is that like your soaring rhetoric for the last ten minutes is 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 part of the reason why we fail at this stuff. <laughs> no, that's why. This wait, is wait, the, okay, the why? There's why? a difference so sorry, between why? you two. Yeah, go on. Jen. Why the is soaring is rhetoric? That... Go on, Jen. Mm. Jen. <laughs> no, I want to hear the critique. I was going to say, why is soaring? I just want to understand Demir's position. Why does the soaring rhetoric part, why is that what tips you over? Like I just said, basically, just I, maybe I was quite eloquent. No, I, not eloquent. Perhaps. No, not eloquent. That wasn't the I problem. liked it. I liked it, Shadi. Do it again. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. But so like, okay, so you're, I basically, all I said in that little monologue was I want the U.S. to be better. Morally. And I, I used morally. to think, no, I, I never, I don't think I said the word morally. 
you, you did I actually use the word morally? Because there was there was shame coming out of you as you were giving this peroration. <laughs> yes, you're ashamed I of America. But instead of instead of saying like we fucked up, you're like I'm ashamed of us. We need to. Do you know what I mean? But this is but but I'm not. Okay, I'm, what's I'm not wrong make, with feeling I'm, shame I'm, about I'm, your? Co- I'm ashamed. No, I'm no, ashamed of us. Jen, I'm Jen, ashamed of Jen, what we did. Do you know yes. what I'm getting at? Do you know what I'm yes, really getting? Yes, I get at? you. Yes, what I'm getting yes. at is that like in in moralizing about this, you sneak Sanctimony. in women's rights. You yes. sneak in everything because underneath that thing, because this is a moral crusade to be better, rather than making it actually a, a, a much lower level. You, the way you solve democracy promotion, if it's solvable, is to lower our sights, is to say that this is something that's good to have. This is not about creating alliances of like-minded. That's the other thing, right? It's this whole democratic alliance thing, like all that ideology. No, it's a means of better governance. And that's it. If you if you lower your sights okay, Demir, to that, did, that's it. Demir, did you hear me sneak in sneaking in women's rights? I don't think I'm known for like I Jen mean, knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, so but like but you're saying the but difference you're, you're between but, you yeah. is Demir sees democracy in an instrumental way, and Shadi, you see democracy as the outcome to be pursued. Yeah, correct. That's fair. right. So Shadi, you see democracy as a means to an end, as just an organized, and I think that's sort of where I sit. And I think it's important there's, you know, and I, ha- I have a little bit of Shaddy in me, uh, but Shaddy sees it. I, I think I'm in the in between. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right, guys. We've been going for a while on this. This was that, awesome, though, Jen. That was great. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Jen. <laughs> All right, guys. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Right, bye. Bye. Bye-bye.